0: Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast, my name's Chris Fernandez packham let's get on with the show. This is part two of episode 27, once I built a railroad, now it's done. I had to split it in half, as it was just getting far too long, but please make sure you've listened to part one before this, as I'm jumping straight Back into the narrative. Starting with the life of the Navi. Also, there were some audio editing problems with part one. With some of the words being clipped. I'm sorry about that. i found the problem and it shouldn't happen again today or in future episodes. But it's not something I can fix for that one. Very sorry about that. As a class... The navvies were regarded as rough at best or disorderly riotous near criminals at worst. There were plenty of good reasons for this. Groups of men were hired by contractors and subcontractors. Some towns saw opportunities selling food or equipment to the navvies. Dickens wrote about the excitement the imminent arrival of the navvies brought pub owners. Quote, A brand new tavern, redolent of fresh mortar in size, and fronting nothing at all, had taken for its sign the railway arms. That might be a rash enterprise. And then it hoped to sell drink to the workmen. So the excavator's house of call had sprung up from a beer shop and the old established ham and beef shop had become the railway eating house with a leg of roast pork daily. Though interested motives of a similar intermediate and popular description lodging house keepers were favourable in like manner and for like reason were not to be trusted, end quote. Now, beer was actually vital for the navvies to get enough calories and it was much safer than drinking the water. It was weaker than modern beer. Home brew beer would have been around 1-2%, to whilst pubs served beer at around 2-3% sometimes surreptitiously watering it down a bit. Of course, the navvies didn't always have the money. Their employers, often sub-subcontractors, sometimes cheated them mercilessly. Or the railway company itself didn't have enough money to pay wages. One letter writer, Ralph Lawson, noted, The men is coming on me their wages and as there is a part cash in hand for work done since it was measure to be paid on Saturday first I hope that you will take into consideration that the men may get these their wages for they threatened to distress me at the justice meeting I was told to pay half of wages and I have and they are not content, end quote. And yes, he does spell Saturday with a D. You can only imagine the temper of the workmen who were labouring in awful conditions, often up before dawn, even in winter, going to the utmost limit of their physical capacity and then finding their employer didn't have enough money to pay them. Lawyers did get involved as contracts got disputed between contractors and the company, but that wouldn't feed the workmen themselves for some time. One incident became infamous and culminated in the Battle of Mickleton Tunnel. Incompetence on this project as a whole was constant as it struggled, even with Brunel himself in charge. Subcontractors proved inept. They went bust, and new contractors were brought in to try and salvage the debacle. But they too were soon borrowing money from the railway company and left some of the expensive miners without anyone in charge, wasting their precious skills and time. These subcontractors also collapsed. A new contractor partnership was formed, but then the railway company began to run out of cash. By 1850, the company was utterly desperate. They had to get the line finished and trains running, or everyone would be left penniless. 1851 was a nail biting year. It came to a head in July 1851. One of the contractors, called Ockroyd, employed a man called Marchant. In July 1851, Railway Company was frustrated with his lack of progress and his complaints of difficult conditions, so they threatened to throw him and his men off the project. Marchant was furious since he was owed the staggering sum of £30,000 back pay. He found some tough men and seized control of the tunnel works by force in a dispute over the lack of pay. Brunel decided that he and some of his own tough navvies would turf Merchant out and get the works going again. Merchant complained to local magistrates who responded with the plain plain level-headed common sense British 19th century magistrates always responded to when there were labour disputes. Just kidding. The magistrates decided there was clearly a riot and so swore in impartial special constables to restore order. One of those impartial special constables being Marchant himself. Marchant used his authority to issue cutlasses and swords to his men and the magistrates read the riot act I've mentioned this before in the Peterloo episode once it was read individuals had an hour to disperse or the magistrates would be entitled to send in whatever forces were needed to impose order at this point Brunel said he wanted to negotiate and send his men away as things seemed to be calming down, the magistrates departed for the night. But Brunel had not been entirely honest. He had sent secret messages to his men to come back once the magistrates left. Luckily, a magistrate called James Ashwin realised what was going on and raced back to the scene at 0300 in the morning. En route, he met a group of Brunel's men and misdirected them in the dark. He finally got to the site to find Brunel and his managers waiting for their mob to arrive. Ashwin decided to swear Brunel in as a special constable, which was clever as it made him more accountable and Ashwin tried to get Brunel to agree to talks with Marchant. As negotiations Dragged on, navvies flooded into the works from all over to support the various sides and their mates. Groups of drunken navvies squared off against each other, armed with sticks, clubs, and tools on Brunel's side and swords on marchants. By dawn, there were over 3,000 armed and angry men in the works. Inevitably, violence erupted and men beat each other with fists and tools. By the time Brunel and Marchant got their men under control, there were dozens and dozens of injured men scattered round with bruises and broken bones. This conflict was probably the largest involving the navvies, but not the most violent. Sometimes the conflict between parties was so serious... That the magistrates had to call in the military, including the artillery. The British authorities did not tolerate even a hint of conduct they considered revolutionary. The wonderful Turnip Railway website, run by transport historian Dr. David Turner, PhD, quotes one incident On the 7th of March, 1846, John Bull reported that at some point between the Saturday the 28th of February and Sunday the 1st of March, a breach of the peace of a most daring kind was committed, attended by a murder. Near the North British Railway's line to Harwick, about 11 miles south of Edinburgh, two navvies were arrested at around midnight as they were suspected of stealing a watch. Soon, 300 navvies had gathered, armed with bludgeons, pickaxes, hedge bills and so on, and headed towards the police station to liberate the accused. On reaching it, one of the navvies held a pistol to the sergeant's head and demanded their comrades release. He refused, and subsequently the mob broke open the cell and released their compatriots. In their march towards their workplace, the local Fushy Bridge, they encountered the District Constable Pace, who they savagely attacked, leaving his skull smashed open. He died on the Sunday afternoon. Thus, in response to this attack, List, a local police officer, had a force of men put at his disposal and he succeeded in apprehending 13 of the rioters in the course of the Monday. Their fate was unknown. End quote. Whatever their fate was, I can guarantee that it was probably pretty harsh. In another incident, two Irish navvies were refused credit at a store. They decided that another navvy had clearly turned the shopkeeper against them, so they went to give him a beating. The poor man fled, so the Irishman assumed he'd hidden in a local cottage and trashed it. They then went to the pub. The pub was crowded with weavers drinking due to a stoppage at a local factory. The Irish navvies decided that the weavers had obviously hidden the guilty man, and so were given an ultimatum, clear off or get a beating. The weavers weren't going to be turned out of their own pub, so went off and got some cudgels of their own, to give the Irishmen a bit of what for on their own behalf. Now, the Irishmen decamped to get reinforcements. They returned with a mob of Irish navvies, bent on raising hell. Two innocent bystanders were seriously injured in a random beating. The magistrates managed to temporarily disperse the mob, but it only gave the participants a chance to get the proper gear out. A crowd of 800 people converged on a local house, armed with pikes, clubs, knives and on the Irish side, pistols. At least two people were shot dead, and many more were injured. The magistrates' patience snapped, and the 86th Regiment of Foot was summoned to restore order, by any means necessary. The rioters wisely vanished, like the morning mist before the troops arrived. Railway companies hated incidents like this, not just because of the outrage to respectable Victorian sentiments or disruption to the works, but because the government sent them the hefty bills, for the cost of the troops. You can begin to see why the prospect of gangs of navvies was popular as the plague in some towns, and the ethnic tensions between the Irish and the Scots were especially vicious in one incident leading to arson attacks. The Irish were assumed to be violent, hard-drinking, and willing to undercut local men's pay by working for lower wages. This was often factually correct, and some Irish contractors were deliberately undercutting locals to get contracts. Irishmen made up nearly 30% of the navy workforce. One town, called Torquay, had a small settlement of navvies in 1847, mostly made up of Irish navvies who were seeking work and food to escape the horrors of the Great Famine. This wasn't popular with the locals, since Devon was also affected by the potato blight, so the additional mouths to feed added to the pressure on local food. The whole UK was going through what were called the Hungry Forties. Riots inevitably followed. Eventually, troops had to be sent in. Payday in any town was dreaded by the locals when navvies engaged in a drinking binge of staggering proportions. Known by... Navy slang as quote a randy end quote between the publicans selling booze and the ladies of negotiable affection who loved payday many navvies had little money left after of course when some of the contractors and engineers decided to stand for parliament well having a loyal mob of incredibly tough violent men was a real advantage on election day. But there was the mundane, everyday harshness. Many of these men were habitually on the move. It made it difficult for them to have family relationships, form community roots or plan for the future. Doing so might be considered the province of the middle class and the contractors. One railway contractor the famous and talented Thomas Brassey, would die in 1870 with an estate valued at 5.2 million pounds or around 150 million pounds in today's money. But for the millions of labourers employed by contractors like Brassey, this was a fantasy. For a navvy The best they could hope was to work long years and drink well, perhaps dying in their fifties as their bodies gave out after years of abuse. They were well sketched in fiction at the time as well as the press. Based on his observations, journalist and author Richard Jeffries wrote a tragic fictionalised account of the marriage of the railway labourer Absalom. To a farm girl called Marge. They fell in love during the harvest. She was a beauty with wicked eyes. Quote, Full of fun and mischief. End quote. He is described as a giant of a man. With a frank countenance. They knew each other a month. Then married. Blowing on their harvest wages. On a week's worth. Of food and drink. The ominous beginning. Is followed by them having to. Work hard. In separate farms. Marge. Quickly grows bored of her husband. Who gets up. Works from dawn till dusk. And comes home. To collapse into bed. After eating. They are lucky to have work. But it is hard. Marge dreams of more excitement, and starts going to a notorious tavern after her work. Drinking, dancing and charming men, especially a former suitor. I'll just remind you that even today in many places, a lot of relationships would struggle if one partner decided to spend time drinking and dancing with other people. Even with the hugely free personal boundaries modern world in Victorian times this was far, far less acceptable married women, drinking in taverns with other men and dancing with them was sometimes a code in Victorian literature for extramarital sex and was certainly scandalous Absalom was enraged waited for his wife at home and then punched her so hard she lost consciousness before storming out for good. To us, that's awful. She was the victim of domestic violence. By the standards of the time, though, he was the victim, made to suffer his wife sleeping with other men and the attendant high risk of an illegitimate child despite displaying the virtues of a good Victorian husband, working hard and providing for them despite the difficulties and not going out drinking with his friends. In Victorian times, being a stable, well-paid worker was considered a much more important trait than being exciting. Victorian working families usually lived on a knife-edge of survival so they expected to stick together. To commit adultery was therefore not only a sin, but also a threat to the survival of the family. I'm not going to get sidetracked into gender, marriage and sex at this point, but I'll just say, there was of course a huge double standard in this area, with women often getting the worst of it. That said, men were known be the victims of domestic violence and to be censored for adultery poor Marge was left alone and soon found herself in debt to the landlord who visits one night to suggest alternative payment methods to the increasingly pregnant woman she responds by punching him hard and throwing him down the stairs finally in her desperate weak state, she is visited by the former suitor, a neighbour, and the priest's wife. They help her deliver a stillborn child, and then she dies too. She is only nineteen. Absalom knows nothing of this for some time, as he is away working on the railways. He returns home to bury his wife. Then stop speaking to people, doing nothing but drink.
1: Okay, that's
0: the bleakest rom-com ever, and it is fictional, but based on observations. Life for the working poor was not a fairy tale, and many of them could have told tales of tragedy. As I've often said, the chocolate tin fairy tale painting of the elegant Victorian life is a lie. And only the very rich got close to that kind of picture of lazy civilised luxury. The poor who were building the railways were not the pampered beneficiaries of empire with servants, fine china, tea, good food and estates funded from cotton and slavery or old landed money. Instead, they were giving their sweat, blood and sometimes lives, to build the railways and getting little in return beyond pain, meagre food and gin At this point you might wonder why people did it Mostly it was hunger Remember what I said in part 1 about the better diet of the Victorian working class? Well the key word there is working If you had good well paid work you could eat well although it would be pretty bland and not always very tasty but it was so easy to fall over the cliff edge into the realm of the working poor those who barely hung on by their fingertips above the abyss of the destitute and the worst of the slums and the workhouses for a man There was great pride in being able to say, I put food on my family's table. Today in our food-rich age, kept afloat by fossil fuels and industrial farming, real hunger and destitution on the Victorian scale is almost impossible in the West. Many today might suffer poor diets or struggle with food. But at a society wide level, hunger sufficient to make you boil grass from the garden or eat gruel for three meals a day, rubbed with leftover lard, is unknown. For the Victorian working man, a lost job could mean starvation. Women and children would usually work to bring in extra, but the man's higher income made an enormous difference. To labour hard and earn more than most working men set the navvies apart. But this didn't stretch to the middle-class luxury of the man as the sole breadwinner. That was almost an aspiration for the Victorians, for a family to earn enough for the woman to stay at home and not undertake paid employment but even then don't forget a lot of women's work around the house was both unpaid and unacknowledged as I've said before for the bulk of the Victorian working class women and children worked as much as the men so don't make the mistake of thinking that a navi saying he was responsible for feeding his family meant he was claiming to be the only person working, he would expect and require his family's support. The heavy burden of the manual work meant that he was often given the best food available, especially meat. This was essential given the high calorie requirements for the workmen I outlined earlier. There were probably plenty of other reasons for doing the job, like pride. In doing a hard job well, the respect of other tough men in the industry which would encourage self-worth and a feeling of being in control of their own lives and labour compared to factory workers, farmers and soldiers and sometimes just the natural drifting into a job and then finding that much to your surprise you are still doing it 20 years later and wondering where your life went. In a show of irony, another of author Richard Jeffrey's stories is about a 64-year-old rural labourer sitting by the roadside when he meets a 20-year-old Navy and bitterly regrets he never took the opportunity to become one himself. He laments his life of poor food, a loveless marriage, a stint in jail for poaching, The loss of his allotment when he was seen staggering in a lane one night by a clergyman who took him as being drunk and then visits from a charity worker who bought the couple blankets and gave them religious lectures, told them to be more thrifty and to be sexually abstinent. And that happened a lot in Victorian life. Imagine how you would feel If you were told that because you were poor, you needed a visit to tell you how to live a moral life. There are plenty of stories of community, though, as well. Employed navvies frequently shared food and coin with unemployed navvies who were down on their luck, knowing that the gesture would be paid forward. Friends and workmates formed intensely loyal bonds. One of the hardest parts railway work was tunnelling in some cases trains often didn't have engines powerful enough to go up some hills in other cases the gradient was just too steep outright engineers wanted flatter lines to let them run trains more quickly and using less fuel plus they wanted to minimise curves to the line and cambers That could tip the early trains off the rails. That meant either bridges or tunnels and often both. Tunnelling was incredibly hard. Let's break it down. You start with a large hill. You need to survey it to get the precise coordinates, measurements and heights. You also need to take samples of the soil and rock. Then there need to be the key decisions. How will you tunnel? How quickly do you want to go? How many men and how much equipment do you want to use? How long will it all take? How much will it cost using the various methods? The simplest method of all is just to start on one side. Go in a roughly straight line and hope you come out in the right place. Give some men some picks. Shovel, plenty of timber and lots of beer. And they will slowly burrow their way through anything. Of course, this simple method was slow, risky and low quality. And no one used it. The step up from this was to have another team at the other side digging towards the first team. And they would meet in the middle. This was the simplest practical method used for very small and easy tunnels, but most tunnels used far more complex methods. The engineers and contractors would choose spots on top of the hill. They would dig an enormous mine shaft straight down to the level of the tunnel. This was repeated until they had two or three mine shafts of the right depth like ants digging down. Then, like ants, the workers would turn left and right to burrow their way out of the mountain. This allowed multiple teams inside the hill, digging smaller sections of one5 meter high tunnels, to link them up, instead of just two teams doing all the work from both sides. A tunnelling project with four shafts could have ten teams of workers at a time, digging away. Isn't that amazing? The precision surveying of those Victorian engineers, contractors and surveyors, meant that each tunnel would hit the next one eventually, even hundreds of feet underground, in the dark. Candles were used for light, and their melted wax was used as spirit levels. But it got even more clever. Each of those original mine shafts were sunk a little deeper than the rest of the tunnel to allow any water to have a sump to sink into to help protect against flooding. This first tunnel would eventually link from one side of the mountain to the other. It was small, cramped, and held up with timber supports. Think of it as a bit like those mining tunnels you see in old western movies. Then, the great work was pushed on to the next phase. At first, in the early days, the standard method was to massively widen the tunnel section around the shafts, from 1.5 metres to 4.5 metres each side. This was risky as the weight of the roof above this open space could lead to collapse so the sides were strengthened with bricks called lining up but one famous collapse showed that this method was not totally safe in the Watford Tunnel the lining up was being done to provide support but the roof collapsed before the work was finished several men died but no one knows if they were killed instantly Or if they were buried and slowly ran out of air or died of thirst in the dark. This has to be up there on one of the worst ways to die I can think of. Not because of the pain, but because you have nothing to do but wait. Knowing exactly what's going to happen and being totally helpless. Just sitting, waiting for death. The collapse of the enlarged tunnel roof brought down the shaft too, meaning it was impossible to get access for a rescue attempt quickly enough. So mid to late Victorian tunnelling used a new method. Everything was done the same way, but instead of enlarging the tunnel from the shafts, the navvies would go further down the small tunnel, away from the shaft, and then make the enlargement, basically creating a series of giant caves along the smaller tunnel, strengthening them, and then eventually linking the hole. If things went wrong, workers could usually retreat up the small original tunnel one way or the other, and still get to a shaft to escape. This was far safer, and cost the company less money. Cave-ins, quite apart from the human cost, were considered extremely bad for business. The navvies' lives were considered mostly expendable, of course, but the company didn't want to shell out a fortune redoing tunnelling work. Also, if the company or contractors employing the navvies got a really bad reputation, the navvies would move on to another project. A navy was highly paid compared to most labourers and invariably had their pick of work in the early railway boom. Most railway companies and contractors would turn to the professionals for tunnelling. Skilled miners were brought in. Experienced, fit and hugely tough men used to working underground and well paid preferably from Cornwall and the tin mines. Even in the 19th century this was a bleak and wild area. Cornish miners were in high demand worldwide especially in the USA during the gold rush but also in Mexico under the banner of the Company of Gentlemen Adventurers in the mines of Real de Monte. The Cornish men introduced football and pasties to Mexico with far-reaching consequences. They demanded high pay and gave hard service. If you think the life of the labourer or the urban poor of London was tough then you've got another thing coming as my grandmother used to say. Conditions in the mines were nightmares. Some of the deep Cornish shafts up to 2,000 foot deep and temperatures underground could hit 100 degrees Fahrenheit or around 37.5 degrees C. One mine grew so hot it had to be abandoned for two months to cool down. Clothing was wholly inadequate and the heat meant that men wore as little as possible. According to Cornish.gov they often wore quote Flannel trousers, heavy boots without socks and a strong, resin-impregnated felt hat with a convex crown on which to secure a candle with a lump of clay was all that most could suffer to wear. End quote. Pay only started when the miner actually got to the rock face they were hacking at so they might have to walk miles to work then carry tools down ladders and trudge miles around the mine till they got to the front itself. The dark rock cut bodies as they scraped past, and human excrement on the ground often got smeared into cuts and wounds, leading to a parasite infection, causing an unpleasant condition called ancholostomyasis. Ladders broke as hungry, tired men rushed to work. Companies didn't pay for the time blasting either. So miners cut explosive fuses short and then rushed back to the rocks for the dust from the blast settled, causing horrific lung damage. Many were simply blown up by mistake. Food had to be carried and eaten underground so was poor and dirty, hence the invention of the Cornish pasty, another working-class masterpiece. Floods and drowning were common too, along with horrific industrial injuries. As the heavy rain came down, panicked, tired men had to scramble up the ladders, the pumps on the surface being run to breaking point in a desperate attempt to buy time. The average age of death, for a Cornish minor, was 28 years old. And remember, unlike most situations where we say mortality rates are affected by high infant mortality rates, this was a job for adults. A job on a railway tunnel must have seemed a bit like a luxury gig in comparison. Contractors paid top dollar for these men with broad shoulders and muscles seemingly hewn from stone. Many a miner turned to bare knuckle boxing standing in the field during a country fair fighting anyone of any size who tossed a coin and a hat into the ring and the 19th century fighters in the mining villages would probably tear any of the modern heavyweights to shreds. But their value to the company Extended only so far, as long as they were saving time and money, they had value. Above all, the company was looking to cut time and costs, as this horrific quote from an engineer shows. He is commenting on whether the explosives for blasting should have had safety fuses. Using them would create less risk, but take longer. Quote, in blasting this tunnel, was the safety fuse used? No. Is that not more safe for blasting than the common fuse? Perhaps it is. But it is attended with such loss of time, and the difference is so very small. I would not recommend the loss of time for the sake of all the extra lives it would save. End quote. So, if you are chatting with friends in the pub, or hear moans online about how it takes us ages to build things today why can't we be like the Victorians and get things done more quickly that's one of your answers right there the Victorian company owners upper classes and government were willing to pay for progress in blood and souls strangely though so were the men themselves as I said before a hard age bred hard people. In 1840, Parliament stirred itself into action and asked companies to provide the data on injuries and fatalities in building the railways. A few companies, like GWR, provided the information. Some major companies and contractors just ignored it. Parliament didn't particularly bother to follow up A select committee inquiry in 1846 went into a lot of detail, but couldn't really decide what conclusions to draw. Opposition to government interference in the railway from engineers and owners like Isambard, Kingdom Brunel, meant that the committee fizzled out, despite support from the brilliant and seemingly inexhaustible Edwin Chadwick. His name is a legend in the arena of public health medicine but he had many run-ins with railway directors and took an intense dislike to the private capitalist model of development and the appalling treatment of workers and customers. Both those names will come up again so you might want to make a note of them for the next pub quiz. The collapse of an enlarged tunnel roof could bring down the shaft too meaning it was impossible to get access for a rescue attempt quickly enough, so a newer method was used instead of enlarging the tunnel from the shafts, the navvies would create their giant caves along the smaller tunnels, shaping and strengthening them, then eventually linking up the hole this was far safer and cost the company less money And this new method allowed even more teams to work on the tunnel, usually in shifts. Up to 40 teams were used on some tunnels. Skilled carpenters were vital for putting up wooden support frames. These were much more sophisticated than those silly square ones in the small mines in the old West. A lot of these frames were as complex as the frames on the roof of a large house. They were often as thick as a man's chest, and extremely heavy. Carpenters were expensive, and paid a piece rate by yard. So a collapse, or even resetting the timbers if they shifted, could cost a huge amount of money. A slight narrowing of the tunnel could mean using less timber, which made a frame stronger, but too small, and then the brick walls, when built, might create a tunnel that was too narrow to use. Even with these various new methods, the troubles weren't ended. Fire was a constant risk. Even more problematic was suddenly hitting soft wet earth that could cause a collapse. Or finding excessive water in the rocks. A tunnel wall might be well built of brick. And the frame taken away. Only to start to leak and sag. From the water in the rock and soil behind it. Finally with the great tunnel finished. The shaft still had to be closed off and filled in. Some unscrupulous companies just closed the top and bottom of the shaft. Hiding it from view. This was extremely dangerous. And either unsuspecting walkers could fall down a hidden shaft. Or the whole thing could cave in, risking the tunnel below. Other shafts were well reinforced by bricks. And used for ventilation. Lasting well into the modern age. Now, we've seen a lot about how to build a railway. And learnt about the people who built them. As with all human life, there were good and bad amongst all classes of people. But what I'm trying to emphasize here, that these people were lively, and they were a world away from the cliche of well-dressed engineers in an office, and a few core blimey governor let me doff me cap to a proper gent, working-class men with spades. Railways didn't just happen. People worked for them, hard and long, with a little prospect of riches for most. The hardest bit about doing this episode has been choosing to leave so many of these fascinating people out from the story. From surveyors, lost in snow in Scotland, to dodgy unqualified men on the make. But you've at least now had a glimpse into their lives and the amazing legacy they leave behind. There is a frustrating conclusion to this episode. Most of the railway tunnels in Britain were built by the Victorians. Some are no longer in use but remain engineering marvels with beautiful entrances and they could be put back into action the UK ever develops an interest in a proper transport strategy, so the cost of maintaining them falls onto various government agencies and councils. Many are now at risk of being classified as too dangerous to keep open, and so are marked to be blasted and filmed in. Many historians, engineers and campaigners have noted that the only actual danger is to government departments' budgets them having to do their jobs and maintain the tunnels after all it is in the long run far cheaper to maintain an old tunnel than to have to build a new one but the working men of Britain sweated, bled and died to build these they were a part of our heritage just as much as the castles or the country houses it is galling that piles of concrete garbage like the South Bank are protected or worse the infamous Park Hill is lauded by architects as an example of fine concrete brutalism whilst great Victorian achievements are ignored or demolished because of the anti-Victorian sentiment in modern Britain. I hope you've enjoyed this show it has run rather long and believe me I could talk about railways a lot more. Our next episode, we will be visiting the railways for the last time for a while when we talk about the two key components vision and money. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at age of Victoria at gmail.com or on Facebook on the Facebook page or in the group just search for Age of Victoria if you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria take care and bye for now